Okay, welcome to day 46 of our journey through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Exodus chapters 17 and 18, Psalm 22, and finally Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 28. Okay, in Exodus 17, the Israelites have now moved on um, and are encamping at a place called uh, Rephidim, where they find no water. And uh, the people of Israel um, are upset about this, and it says that they quarreled with Moses. Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me, and why do you test Yahweh? Um, so they're, they're, they're complaining to him, but in complaining and grumbling to God's leader, they are complaining and grumbling to God himself, because Moses is the chosen representative of the Lord among the people. Um, and just, you know, this is not them just being like, hey, we're thirsty, can we get something to drink? You get a sample of what they're saying uh, in verse 3, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst, right? And we saw, like, we've seen kind of this... Um, I guess you could say quasi-sarcastic um, grumbling before already. We've seen, like, where there—is is it that there were no graves in Egypt that you uh, decided to bring us out into the wilderness to kill us? Uh, that kind of stuff. And um, so so in accompanying this, this um, extremely untrusting uh, hard time that they're giving him, uh, we also see when Moses cries to the Lord in verse 4, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. So this situation is really is really bad. And um, I think one cannot help but be struck by um, something of the irony of the situation, where these people had just been slaves crying out to God because of their bondage, and they've witnessed God doing these incredible things on their behalf, and they're uh, but they've they've quickly forgotten what what it is that God has delivered them from, and now they're complaining. And um, I think sometimes this can this is an obvious, uh, has obvious connections with our own walks with the Lord, where, you know, we, we, we forget that, that what the Lord has delivered us from, and sometimes complain about the things that we must endure as his children, as his people, as people who are trying to be obedient and to follow Jesus— um, let us not forget the, the, that from which we, were, we have been saved. Um, and so Moses cries out to the Lord, and um, the, the Lord tells him <clears throat> to, uh, to go ahead and take some of the elders of Israel um, <clears throat> and, um, and to go and to take the staff that he used to strike the Nile and to strike a rock at Horeb. Okay, so they're in Horeb. Remember, I mentioned that Horeb is, seems to be generally the name of the region um, that the mountain of Sinai is in. And, uh, and he strikes the rock, and water comes out of it in the sight of all the elders of Israel. And notice the emphasis there, in the sight of them. Uh, again, a lot of this stuff is serving as, I suppose we could say, evidence, right? Signs for why they have to listen, why they have to believe, why they have to trust the Lord. God is giving them reasons to believe in him, and um, and it's important not to miss that. This is, the, the, in fact, this is 
one of the primary reasons of miracles in the Bible, which are often called signs. They are to confirm that God is indeed speaking. He is requiring of his people something new, something bold, and uh, we see this uh, in, in particular here uh, in and around the Exodus time where there's lots of signs being done. There's lots of miraculous manifestations of God and his power. We see it also in the narratives of Elijah and Elisha, which we'll reach later on in this year, where uh, Baalism, the worship of the, the Canaanite deity Baal, becomes uh, a national religion, and the prophets essentially have to say, don't listen to the king, listen to, listen to the Lord, right? And you have signs accompanying that. And then finally, you see the other big cluster of signs and miracles in Jesus's ministry and in the ministry of the apostles, where it's God is on the move, something significantly new has happened, and, and you need to listen. Uh, God wants his people to know the truth is here, not there. And so he accompanies it with signs. Okay, and then in verse 7, we're told that the name of the place is actually given two names. It's, it's called Massah and Meribah. Uh, Massah meaning testing, and Meribah meaning quarreling. And of course, this is because the people quarreled at Moses and they tested Yahweh. We see that both in verses 7 and uh, what is initially said back in verse 2. Um, okay, and then the second half of chapter 17 is actually Israel's first real armed conflict. And it is very important to note that verse 8, then Amalek, which is a, you know, it's a tribal group often dwelling um, in the regions of Sinai, also a lot in the south of what we, of, of Canaan, um, and Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now we see uh, later on, when this is reflected upon in the book of Deuteronomy, for example, the um, uh, elaboration on this about more things that were going on, there we will learn how uh, Amalek was actually kind of picking off the weaker among them, the stragglers, even women and children, those who were not kind of like at the front of the march, those who maybe had grown weary, the old, the old because uh, they're the easy targets with this group of large group of people moving through the wilderness. Um, so Israel is not the aggressor here. This is uh, Amalek coming and 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 fighting against them. And uh, Moses tells Joshua, um, and here is uh, our first mention of Joshua, the son of Nun, who will become uh, Moses's kind of um, uh, Moses's wingman, I suppose we could say <laughs> throughout this. Uh, it's kind of been Aaron, but Joshua will, of course, be the one to succeed Moses, and so he's going to start being involved a lot more. Uh, interesting to note, at this point, uh, his name is actually Hosea. Uh, it's not yet Joshua. Moses will uh, eventually change his name, but here uh, he is called by his later name, Joshua. But he tells Joshua, "'Choose for us men to go out to fight with Amalek.'" Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And we've seen the power that is in the staff of God, right? This was what was used to defeat the Egyptians. This is what was used to just bring the water from the rock at Rephidim, at, Mar at uh, Meribah and Massah. And um, it is also, of course, what was used in several of the plagues. So this is not just Moses like, I'm going to find myself a good place to watch. Of course, he's beyond fighting age at this point, Moses is. 
And uh, Joshua goes and he assembles the, the men who will fight and, and defend Israel against these attacking raids coming from Amalek. And uh, Joshua will, will lead the fight. Meanwhile, up on the hill, um, uh, Moses, Aaron, and a man named Hur. Um, Hur is from the tribe of Judah. We learn in chapter 31, verse 2. Uh, he's a Judean guy. I'm not exactly sure what the significance of him is at this point. Uh, later on, he is going to be the father of a guy named Betzalel, who is uh, who is entrusted with the um, with a lot of the craftsmanship that will go into the tabernacle. Um, uh, so, but um, I suspect it's it's the, his significance coming from the tribe of Judah, um, because right now all the action has taken place with guys who are Levitical. And having read Genesis, you're like, well, what's going on with Judah? And so it's just making clear that he's kind of this is he's kind of getting in uh, Judah is getting incorporated into what God is doing because of course the promise at the end of Genesis was that the royal line in Israel would come from Judah. Uh, but at any rate, these guys go with Moses uh, up the hill, and um, it turns out that again. Another way in which the people can see that the Lord is working through you. Without him, you're nothing. With him, you do not have to worry. He will take care of you. He will care for you. He will feed you in the wilderness. He will deliver you from slavery. He will give you water in the wilderness. And here he will protect you even from uh, an enemy who is trying to kill you. And as a way to show them this, uh, it turns out that whenever Moses had raised his hand uh, I, I think presumably with the staff of God in it, in the air, Israel prevailed, but when he couldn't, Amalek prevailed. And so what the guys who are with him uh, do is they enable Moses to keep his arms up. They put a rock under him for him to sit on. Um, you know, he's he's a little up there. And uh, and Aaron and her, um, uh, they 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 prop up Moses's arms, holding holding him up. Um, and at the end of this, uh, Israel, of course, is is victorious uh, because of the Lord's help in this. Uh, but they're they're told that um, this is going to be a memorial in the book. In a book, um, this is the first mention of a book that is being written during these journeys. It's very very significant. Um, because of course we are reading what uh, eventually comes of this this book. And um, and and part of that is this memorial, what, what we're reading right here, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And uh, indeed, Amalek does appear throughout Scripture as a uh, perpetual kind of enemy of God's people. Um, this indeed is an ongoing promise. Uh, they the, the Amalekites appear again in uh, Saul has to face them, David has to face them. Um, they're in the book of Judges, and um, interestingly, even as late as the book of Esther, you have the enemy of God's people there, Haman the Agagite, okay, uh, with Agag being a king from Amalek. So these people are going to be around for a while, and so, but there's this perpetual promise that God is going to blot out the memory of them. He's going to bring judgment against them because they are just perpetually against what God is doing and against his people trying to take advantage, trying to, I don't know, with uh, perhaps we could say <clears throat> one of the earliest uh, anti-Semites, right? Um, 
and uh, there in celebration of the victory, or in, probably better said as a memorial to the victory, Moses builds an altar there and calls it Yahweh Nisi. Yahweh is my banner. Um, and then saying, a hand upon the throne of Yahweh, which probably um, has to do with an oath. Usually, uh, you know, uh, raising your hand is, uh, you, you swear an oath when you do that. Um, and, uh, and, you know, p- perhaps memorializing this, this command of, uh, that, that Israel will, will be opposed to Amalek from, from here on forth. Um, as it says, Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Uh, so interestingly, even though he says, I'll utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, it's interesting that here it says that this war will continue with from generation to generation. In other words, we should not take verse 14 to mean that, that Amalek is going to be gone right away. No, they're going to be around for a while. Um, but I think kind of like the meaning is basically, any of you know any Amalekites? You know, that, that kind of thing. Okay, then in chapter 18, something really interesting happens. So the priest of Midian comes out to meet Moses. Now, this is Moses' father-in-law. Uh, here he is called Jethro. Uh, back when Moses initially met him, he was being called Reuel. It's not a problem. People had more than one names often uh, could be referred to as more than one thing. Uh, I've ever I've already noted how Joshua at this point is Hosea, and he will eventually be Joshua. So here he's called Jethro, and he comes out and uh, brings Moses' wife and his children. We didn't even know he was, they weren't there. We find out now that Moses had apparently sent them away sometime during the plagues. Recall that they did return to Egypt with him, uh, but sometime during that ordeal, Moses, perhaps wanting to protect them, sent them back to Midian to their father-in-law. So uh, his two sons are there. We've already heard of Gershom. Uh, um, I'm a sojourner in a foreign land, and Eliezer, and his name is, ex- is explained, um, my God is help, is what uh, Eliezer means. And, um, and Jethro comes, and he, he comes, and, and they're encamped at the mountain of God. So they've, they've reached Sinai by this point. And he sent word to Moses, and he lets him know he's coming. And uh, when he gets there... He hears all that has happened, and interestingly, he kind of becomes the first one um, to, as, well, especially the first pagan. I, I suppose you could say that the first one to really celebrate God for what he's done here in the Exodus, I guess the first thing that would count would be the Song of Moses in chapter 15. But it is very significant that here, a non-Israelite, at least non-Israelite at this time, as far as we can tell, Midianite priest, um, who that he may or may not be a priest of, of Yahweh, um, here acknowledges the Lord as, as um, uh, he, you know, he praises the Lord for what he's done. Blessed be Yahweh, who's delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know, he says, that Yahweh is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And, um, and then he proceeds to hold 
the first sacrifice that we know of coming out of Egypt. Now, of course, Moses has just built an altar, so it may be that sacrifices had been taking place, uh, unless that altar is strictly a memorial thing. Uh, we see one a memorial altar, for example, in the book of Joshua. But uh, but yeah, and 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 uh, that's very interesting, right? That remember in Matthew how we saw how non-Jewish people are emphasized for their holiness uh, in, to some extent. Um, not, not to say that they're always holy, but when they are, God really lets us know that, like, look, this is not just a family affair. We've seen how the mixed multitude left Egypt with Israel. Um, so we, we just need to—I I often bring this up when it comes up in the Old Testament because I want people to really be dispelled of the notion that God's choosing of Israel is, like, akin to, like, racism or something, right? Like, this is the chosen race, and it's coming through. Like, no, like, people are—it's—it's—it—yes, this is a, the blessing upon this extended family that has grown from Abraham, but it's not as if it's this closed group and everyone else is just doomed. Um, there is there is an—clearly not, not as much as the New Testament. We've already seen Jesus go into all nations— but there's definitely something of what I like to call a missionary aspect of the Old Testament. Um, this remi- this reminder through these little things that happen that the promise to Abraham is that all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. Um, and um, yeah, and the elders eat bread with Jethro, and then and uh, and they do it before God. So this is probably a sacrificial meal. Um, a lot of a lot of sacrifices in, uh, involved eating. In fact, that's one of the main con- common denominators of most sacrificial uh, rituals, not just in Israel but in the ancient Near East. Uh, in fact, um, I remember reading a paper by one religious anthropologist who suggested that perhaps sacrifice began as a justification for eating meat. Like you feel guilty for shedding something's blood, something's blood, but it does give you a lot of energy and it is quite tasty to eat some meat roasted over a fire. And so why don't we make it this sacred moment to kind of justify it? Uh, I'm not saying that that's how it started. And I think that is an extremely speculative um, way to think about it. And, uh, but it is interesting that like, it's, it's that ubiquitous in sacrificial rituals that the meat is consumed. Um, yeah. All right. So the next day, um, Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning to evening. So this is the first time we see this concept of judging, uh, which here clearly means he's resolving disputes, um, you know, you've got a lot of people, they're going to be disagreeing, they're going to have disagreements, and somebody needs to be able to say, here's what's what, here's what we're going to do, here's what's right, um, you know, someone owes something, someone, here's what you owe, etc. Uh, but it's interesting here when, when uh, you know, Jethro sees this and he's kind of disturbed at it, and Moses explains what he's doing in verse 15. Check this out, it says, because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Okay, notice where we are in the narrative. We're, the, the, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, has not even yet been given, and yet Moses is receiving uh, statutes and what he calls Torot, laws of God. Um, very, very interesting where this is placed. And not only so, but 
um, I think uh, it's important to realize uh, as as we're reading the uh, the law uh, that we will see in the uh, in these first five books of the Bible, uh, we'll be encountering this. A lot of this is what we would typically call case law, okay, where it's basically um, you've had a situation. A judge has made a ruling according to some kind of principle, and this serves as like the standard going forward. Um, this is, you know, we 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 talk about stare decisis in uh, in American law um, that that the the precedent stands, and a lot of the laws in the uh, Bible are kind of like that, and and often it'll, there'll be like these very specific situations, like if a man does this and then do this, if this happened. And I think it's reasonable to think that what we have here is maybe the beginning of this, the beginning of some of these, perhaps even some of the laws that we will encounter later on in the Bible um, are being written at this time, um, uh, recorded. We've already had the mention of a book that things that there's there's a written record being kept of some of this stuff, um, which, of course, makes it into what we're reading now. And uh, yeah, so I think we're starting to see um, some of these laws, especially uh, perhaps some laws that we'll encounter later in the Pentateuch starting to be written down. But Jethro has a problem with this. Long story short, he's like, Moses, you're going to get overwhelmed. You can't just every, this is a large group of people. Every time someone has a dispute, they have to come to you. No, a point for a point, um, really able people throughout, throughout here and uh, trustworthy, who hate a bribe, they're going to be impartial. Men who are known to be, um, well, trustworthy, right? And um, have them judge alongside of you. And then if there's really tough stuff where, you know, people need to inquire of the Lord, then they can come to you. But you need to delegate some of this responsibility. Essentially, like Jethro gives this leadership seminar to Moses, and Moses uh, agrees. And here you have the institution of uh, judges in Israel established. Okay, let's look a little bit at Psalm 22. Uh, it's an interesting psalm to 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 encounter, being that we like we just saw we just talked um, about how Jesus uh, in his when he's hanging on the cross, cites this psalm, right? He he cries out, I should say, he cries this psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and as I said then, this is a psalm of David. It is a, uh, it is um, a, a psalm about uh, feeling alone, even though you know God loves you, right? This, this idea like, like, and I think we can all experience that, right? We, we've we all had those times in life where you're like, why the heck is God letting this happen to me? Where is he? Does he love me? Is there something wrong? Have I, you know, and, and this is the psalm, this is David wrestling with that. This is, the psalms are often records of wrestling, okay? And so you have this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, right? Like, you don't answer me. And, and it, this psalm is interesting, I think, because of its back and forth. Um, uh, you don't answer, but you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They cried to you. You rescued them. You've got this track record, but I, here I am, David, your, your, your king, your Messiah, I'm a worm. I'm scorned. I'm despised. People are mocking me. But then 
You took me from the womb. You cast me from my birth. You've been my God since then. But then many bulls surround me, right? I'm, I'm poured out like water. Um, uh, my, my, my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. Uh, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of the earth. I'm encompassed by dogs. A company of evildoers encircles me. Um, and uh, they have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So it's quite understandable how, I think we see here, uh, how some of this messianic stuff works, right? Like that that this happened, this is how David poetically is describing his anguish, his struggles, um, this feeling of abandonment by God, and uh, the gospel writers are happy to point out the correspondences. And the idea is, again, as I've said before, and I think it's important to understand this, that this is true of David, God's king. It is ultimately true of Jesus, God's ultimate king, God's true son. Um, and uh, yeah, so so I think like that's... The, it's these correspondences that the gospel writers do see. I do want to note, however, that um, there there's a bit of a translational issue in chapter in verse sixteen here because what right because so you see in in most in, in a lot of English translations they have pierced my hands and feet and obviously there that sounds quite a bit like Jesus on the cross. Um, I'm actually of the opinion that that is not a correct translation of that and a lot of evangelical commentators, Hebrew scholars would agree. This is a tricky phrase because it kind of, it's hard to see what sense it makes. And having read the book of Job, I think we can understand that sometimes Hebrew poetry, the meaning of it kind of eludes us. But if you're lit, uh, I, I can't really explain where they get, they've pierced my hands and feet from, but uh, the, um, it, because it just would be a waste of time. Um, uh, not because prob probably just as much of my uh, my inability to explain it well as as anybody listening's lack of uh, knowing Hebrew, but the the way this phrase should probably be translated is um, a company of evildoers encircles me like a lion, my hands and feet. Um, I think that has something to do with the way that a lion will encircle its prey. If you have to, you know, if I'm being pressed there, um, I don't think it is they've pierced my hands and feet. Um, so I, I wouldn't personally use this as like, you know, uh, in my argument of from prophecy or something like that. And, uh, uh, the, the other thing I want to note here is that um, this, of course, does, uh, this Tom does end on a high note, which I think perhaps might also be one of Jesus's reasons for citing it, that um, he is in despair, but the Lord, ultimately, you're going to end up praising God. And so it's like, you know, tell of his praise in the great congregation. Um, the afflicted are going to eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And um, and uh, remember how I said the talked about the missionary aspect of the Old Testament a few minutes ago, verse twenty seven. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, 
for kingship belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. Notice how this is extended to the Gentiles. Um, Again, Matthew's the one who notes this connection. Matthew's the one who ends his gospel, go to all nations. Um, So I think, you know, Psalm 22 is quite important, I think, in, in kind of getting behind Matthew's mindset and how he's telling the story of Jesus. All right, let's look a little bit at Mark uh, chapter 1. Mark is an intru- uh, is the second synoptic gospel, after Matthew, synoptic meaning the gospels that are similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, there is uh, some kind of literary dependence between them, um, their, their wording, the orders of the events that they put things in, um, just the stories they tell. It's, it's clear that there's, there's some kind of relationship between them. Um, most scholars would say that Mark is written first, um, which is definitely quite quite probable, um, and uh, it is brief. It is it is brief, um, at least compared to Matthew and Luke and John, right? Um, okay, so it begins actually. There's no telling of Jesus's birth, and I don't think that's a problem, right? He's just saying, I just want to start telling the story here, um, and uh, but now Mark. Uh, is particularly interested in Jesus's identity, uh, Jesus as the Son of God, uh, Jesus as the the pre-existing Son, perhaps we could say, God's King. Uh, like these categories are getting mingled already here in the Synoptic Gospels, um, but uh, yeah. So it starts off the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and I think. Uh, here we we see that the word gospel, which technically just means good news, uh, good news that you announce, is uh, is kind of pliable in its meaning. It doesn't just mean one thing. Of course, we think we think of like the gospel, um, like the way that Paul would explain it. Um, Jesus died uh, for our sins, then he was buried and he was raised on the third day. Right, that's the gospel. Um, but you kind of think of it as like a target, right? Like concentric circles. Uh, one way that I've heard it explained is the go- the gospel is what God has done for sinners through His Son Jesus Christ. Like that's the good news that we're to tell, and um, and there's different ways of conceiving of that. And the very specific, if you want, like I've got ten seconds, right? Jesus died for your sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. But as you go out further and further, you learn uh, there, there's more, right? There, there's the, there's, uh, the, the general proclamation of the kingdom. Uh, there's a sense in which Mark here is already considering his telling a gospel, right? The general story about Jesus' life. So the idea is just that it's—if it's, uh, w- you see the word gospel— uh, we shouldn't always be like, well, what is the gospel? The Bible is clear about it, but the Bible uses the terms in, in slightly different ways, uh, never unrelated to one another. But again, I think the way to think about it is as cons- is as like, um, how specific are we talking? And also, I think interesting here, um, how at what point in uh, in human history are we talking about? Because here we're prior to the cross, right? And so Jesus can go around... Um, notice how he's preaching in verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He's probably not going around telling people, I'm going to die on the cross. You need to believe in me for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, maybe, but we're certainly not told that um, 
uh, with any degree of clarity in the Gospels themselves, that that was part of his preaching. Rather, it sounds like he's saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here, that is the good news I'm proclaiming to you, so you need to repent and you need to believe this. And uh, it's interesting because uh, he's preceded in this, in John the Baptist, who is essentially doing the same thing, but at the earlier phase, right? The the pre-Jesus, but right before him. He is the messenger before the face of the Son of God coming, right? Who will prepare the way for you. And here, um, where it says that, of course, I noted the other day, this is actually a composite quotation uh, from Malachi 3, verse 1, and then from Isaiah 40, verse 3. Uh, but here, it's just Isaiah who's noted, and this practice, as I, we said the other day, in um, when John quotes Zechariah and um, and and parts of Jeremiah and just calls it Jeremiah, that this is the this is the convention of how you quote scripture there that that if you are making a composite quotation, um, that you, they you will tend to cite the more major of the prophets, and that's all that's going on here. Uh, this voice of one crying in the wilderness. This is John the Baptist, of course. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Um, Two things on this. First of all, remember we I I I've been using the name Yahweh when we read the word Lord in the Old Testament, um, and I noted there that I I do that because I think that that is a, an accurate way to read Scripture. I think that God does want us to 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 read His name, but I'm not so like adamant about that that like it always has to be the case, and you're wrong if you do it otherwise. Because I look here and. Uh, Mark is quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3, and he has Lord, Kurios. He does not say, prepare the way for Yahweh, like Isaiah 43 says. And that leads to the other interesting thing about that quotation, and that is that in that quotation, whose way is being prepared? Yahweh's, right? The one true God. Here, who is the Lord who is whose way is being prepared? Jesus. Interesting. There's a lot of subtle ways that the New Testament gives us what we know today now as the doctrine of the deity of Jesus. Okay, so um, uh, I'm not going to talk about everything that happens in the interest of time here. I do want to note that uh, if you read these, these, especially Mark 1, uh, there is a lot of stuff immediately happening. The word immediately, I, I, I forgot to count, but is somewhere between five and ten times. Like everything, immediately they do this, immediately they do this. And... Um, it just gives this idea of like this urgency. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's got to have, and so like stuff is moving forward. Um, that's kind of like the literary effect that that has. Um, Jesus is baptized. He, uh, the there's a voice from heaven. Remember, I said Mark is particularly concerned with who Jesus is. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Um, and then immediately he's driven into the wilderness, and uh, he's there for 40 days, just as he was in Matthew. Uh, I noted already Jesus takes over. John's preaching was a, a, a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Um, uh, notice the, 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 that forgiveness of the sins is necessary even at this early phase. This emphasis on forgiveness, not just merely like let's be part of the kingdom of God and be nice to everybody and 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 uh, you know have you hugged a peasant today? No, this is uh, more significant. I I stole have you hugged a peasant today from uh, the way that N.T. Wright summarizes uh, John Dominic Crossan's um, understanding of Jesus. But uh, 
All right, I just wanted to give credit where credit's due there. Um, and then he calls his first disciples. We see him calling Simon and Andrew, the brothers, as well as the sons of Zebedee, John and James. And uh, um, I do want to say that if you compare this to, let's say, how John tells a story, it seems to be the case that they've already had some contact with Jesus. Um, you know, he's been around and they've had time. So in other words, when he comes up to them and they're mending their nets and stuff and they're like, and he's like, follow me. I don't think that we're supposed to envision like they've never seen him before, have no idea who he is, but they're just like, okay. Um, I think they've, they've, they have encountered him. You know, uh, Andrew's already brought Peter to him. Uh, and John, Jesus said, so, so, you know, that you are Simon, the son of John, you will be called Peter from now on. Like that stuff, I think has already taken place. Um, okay. Uh, um, uh, then, uh, they go to Capernaum, um, uh, perhaps just with these four disciples so far. And immediately again, right, they find themselves in the Sabbath on the sin in the synagogue. And Jesus is given an opportunity to teach there. And they are astonished at his authority. So again, keep in mind Matthew or Mark's, Mark's emphasis on Jesus's identity that, uh, certain, certain individuals know who he is, right? The voice from heaven knows who he is. The narrator knows who he is. His disciples don't really know who he is yet, nor do the people in the synagogue. Um, but you know who does? The unclean spirit who's in a man there. So Jesus is teaching. They're already marveling because he's teaching with authority, not as the scribes. Remember, Matthew said the exact same thing in chapter 7 after the Sermon on the Mount, that he's, he's not just saying, like, let's Let's interpret the books of Moses. No, he's, this, is a, this is an I say to you, and they're marveling at this. They're like, oh my gosh. And then, uh, and then this demon, uh, this, this unclean spirit, apparently more than one, right? Because it's, he's, he's referring to himself as a we, as an us. Um, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And you know, everyone's Jesus' identity. Yeah, he's Jesus of Nazareth. He's just that guy over from Nazareth. Have you come to, to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And, um, and yeah, so, so the unclean spirit knows exactly who he is, and um, Jesus rebukes him, saying, uh, be silent, come out of him. He convulses him, and, the, and it comes out. And everybody notes, like, a new teaching with authority. We've already noted that, right? And he commands, look at his authority, he commands even unclean spirits and they come out of him. And, uh, and as a result of that, his fame spreads throughout the surrounding Galilee. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you for sticking with us. I look forward to, um, to day 47 with you tomorrow. So just keep on trucking on and I hope you're enjoying, I hope you're growing uh, in your knowledge and love for the Lord through this. Uh, but until tomorrow, take care. And bye-bye.